I just don't think it should be this absolute default for all couples where if you want to bring it up, you can't because it is viewed as a betrayal just to have the conversation. I, I think the default should be that this is a conversation that people have, not that everybody should be in this same relationship type without ever being allowed to talk about it. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. What do we talk about? Mm, wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're do all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Good afternoon, Zoe. Good afternoon. <laughs> you didn't change your last name, right? When you got... When I got married? No, you didn't. I mean, like, no, that's a question. I, already I did not change my last name. Why? I don't know. I just forgot for a moment. Yeah, you I'm... I think, um, like, you know, if somebody refers to me as Mrs. Kurtz, I will respond, but it's not legally changed. And you? Um, I still have, no, I'm... Uh, you're, only, think, you're only Zoe Eisenberg in Clubhouse. Yeah. When I've <laughs> run out of, like, user ID names, I have to, like, reuse Eisenberg. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, well, speaking of marriage. Speaking of marriage. It's a good time to talk about it, because we've all been in lockdown with our partners for way too long, sometimes. Yeah, we suspected that perhaps some might be going through some challenging times. Um, just a hunch. And I have to say that we might be right. We might be right. But luckily, there's Eli Finkel, who is a professor of psychology and also the best-selling author of The All or Nothing Marriage. Which it really isn't like all or nothing, but it's got, I mean, it's, what did we say? Resentment. What's the thing about resentment and expectations? So good. Expectations are just resentments waiting to happen. Right. So this came up a lot in the context of relationships and where they sort of like veer off a bit and become challenging. And so much of it has to do with expectations. And Eli does a really amazing job of putting it all in um, context. Yes. He's got a ton of historical reference and research on marriage and what it used to mean and what it means now and what we expect from it and how it's all different. And then it also gets really tactical, which I think is helpful because you know you can analyze the shit out of it, but unless you're actually going to offer up some help, it's a little bit you know not useful for people. So we are super grateful to Eli. I'm going to give him a little shout out, fellow Northwestern Wildcat. Woohoo! Oh, did you guys have yeah. crushes on each other? No, we just lived down the hall from each other freshman year. Willard Hall. What's up? <laughs> anyway, great book. Great conversation. Enjoy. We love giving you ad-free episodes, but you're going to have to listen to this one real quick. Because this episode is brought to you by us. Yes, our brand new brand, Earth and Star, is taking your daily habits like cold brew and matcha and elevating them with adaptogens 
and give you some ridiculously healthy benefits. Benefits such as cognitive function, calm, stamina, and a huge boost to your immune system, which I think we can agree we all need right now. Our super convenient, ready-to-drink lattes are 100% certified organic and plant-based made with, what else? Rothy oat milk. Is there any other kind of oat milk today? I don't think so. No packets or tubs or clumpy, weird powder that no matter how much you try to mix it, it never seems to dissolve. Just a delicious little can of magic. We've got all the flavors. We've got cold brew coffee, matcha, turmeric, cacao, which is basically adult chocolate milk. And we are adding 2000 milligrams, that is no small dose, of functional mushroom extracts like lion's mane and chaga to basically upgrade your everyday habit into a kick-ass functional latte. Kick-ass. Kick-ass. Available at earthandstar.com. Take 15% off with the code HTW at checkout. Earth and Star Mushroom Lattes. Amazing taste. Healthy as So we're both completely obsessed with your book, The All or Nothing Marriage. Welcome, Eli Finkel, officially. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. We are delighted to have you. We are so happy to have you. (laughs) And so this book, you actually wrote a couple of years ago, correct? Yes. Uh, And it seems to be having a resurgence of of sorts. Is that COVID-related, do we think? It could be. um, You know, trying to have a good relationship is a little bit of an evergreen topic. True. True. True, true. Where shall we begin? I know. I know. Well, I guess a good place to start is really kind of what prompted you to write this book, because obviously you've been doing research on this topic throughout your career and written a ton. Your CV, by the way, is like its own book. It was shocking for me to just look at everything that you have done since we knew each other in college, full disclosure. Um, But so how did you kind of get to this place and what inspired it? And then we'll dive into the book, which is just amazing. There were a few things. Um, One of them was I at some point came to the realization that that there are lots of people like me who basically devote their careers to trying to understand how relationships work and using scientific methods to do it. And and by scientific methods, I mean advancing hypotheses and collecting data and testing whether we're right or wrong, but that almost all of that work was cloistered in academic journals. Um, And I thought, you know, this isn't a book that's aimed at a fourth grade reading level. It's it's not like the user friendliest, uh, you know, the 10 secrets to have a great marriage. But for people who think seriously about these things, um, I thought they would want to know what is it that that people who devote their lives to trying to understand this stuff have learned. And so the book basically is, is, uh, I built a I think a sort of a new theory of what I think marriage is like these days. And then I, I reviewed the evidence that's related to the theory. And I hopefully did it in a way that's accessible to people who like to, uh, like to think about these sorts of things. Well, I think that's a good point is you say it's not written for a fourth grade sensibility, which it's not, but the accessibility factor I think is actually really key and cool. It's like, it's all of this research and there's this blend of clinical information, but then, you know, you bring in examples like Carrie Bradshaw and like what she represents and Elizabeth Gilbert and, you know, anybody who's reading this book has some level of cultural reference to all of these kind of comparisons that you're bringing in. And I thought that they were really actually very helpful because even if we can't see some of that stuff in ourselves, you definitely, you know, you you think about that scene with Carrie and Alexander, for example, and you're like, okay, yes, I know what he's talking about. I am somebody who needs love. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole book starts with, with Liz Gilbert and her, her, you know, eat, pray, love jaunt around the world. And, you know, the, the book basically starts with her leaving her husband. So far as we can tell, he's a good man and they have a totally fine marriage, but not really what she's looking for. It's, it's not fulfilling in this sense that she's not able to be her authentic self, her full self. And she thinks, look, I'm not going to tolerate that. And I contrast it a little bit with what happened throughout, you know, our heroines throughout the, the Western canon. So people like Anna Karenina, who dies by locomotive, right? There's all these stories of, of women who wanted to pursue love and personal growth. And the stories were very, very sad. The message was women don't do that. Well, we're in a new era now. Okay, so what era are we in? <laughs> ah, yes. Well yeah. done. Uh, we are in the era of the all or nothing marriage. That's the title of the book. And the idea is, is not really that, that a marriage is all or nothing. The idea is that, is that, yes, this is the era that we're in. And I started the book thinking that we were kind of ruining this, this institution, that, that basically we uh, Americans these days are throwing so much expectation on this one relationship. Um, we've withdrawn to a large extent from our broader social networks, and we've just really doubled down on this one relationship to help us meet so many of our emotional and psychological needs. And I became disturbed by that. And that was actually the, the initial source, the initial idea that I had when I, I set out to start writing the book. But one of the things that's fun about being an academic is you're an expert in one field. My field is social psychology, but then you get to read the sociology and the history and the economics and the philosophy. And, and I realized that my thesis basically was wrong, um, that, that it isn't really that we're systematically asking more of the marriage of our marriages today than in the past. And it isn't the case that marriages are systematically getting worse. The story really is one of, of divergence, whereas indeed the, the average marriage today is worse than the average marriage, say, in the 1950s. And that's partly because of the expectations that we're bringing. But the best marriages today are better. Um, and in fact, I, I came to conclude that the best marriages today are probably the best that the world has ever seen. Okay. So can we just go with that? And can you please give us, uh, define what it is then? Uh, what is a best marriage? What does the best marriage look like? Well, I mean, I, I, think we can, I think we can use two criteria for evaluating whether a marriage is good. Um, the first is, does it persist? That is, if, if a marriage has ended in divorce, I, I think we, we can say maybe that it was good for a while, but I, I think most of us who say things like, till death do us part, would rather that their marriage last for the long run. Um, and the second one is it's subjectively fulfilling. Um, and it's really the, the, those two things that I'm using to evaluate the quality of the marriage. How fulfilling do people find their marriage? How happy are they in the marriage? Uh, I track 400 years of history in the front end of the book where I say, all right, we'll go back to colonial times or the 1800s. Think, for example, of, of Abraham Lincoln's parents. So Abraham was born in 1809. He was born into a house that was a single room, dirt floor log cabin. And he had an older sister. Then another kid came along but died. Uh, when Abraham was nine, his mother died. When he was still a teenager, his only remaining sibling died, giving birth to a, a stillborn child. Um, and you, you start to understand that, that the way we think about marriage is, is really predicated on our cultural circumstances, our economic circumstances. Mm -hmm. Do you think that if you were Abraham Lincoln's parents, you would say, look, he's a good man? But I don't get the pitter patter. Like, you know, when he kisses me, I can't feel it in my fingertips. You would have been laughed out of your little hamlet. Um, and so the idea is that, that as, as our world has changed, as our, our economy has changed and our culture has changed, our expectations, what we're looking for from marriage has changed. And so what I just described is what I consider the first of the three eras that, that I call the pragmatic era. We literally were looking for things like 
survival, literally the things like food, clothing, and shelter. These are the sorts of things that were essential in the marriage. Fast forward to about 1850 up until maybe the 1960s or so, and then you have a situation where love is primary. Now, of course, people marry for other things. Marriage is always to some degree about money and other sorts of practical things, but, but no self-respecting middle-class person said anything other than they wanted to marry for love. And that was great. And finally, we, able, we were able to do it. In the 1950s, it all came together and people were unhappy. Um, and then in the 60s, we shattered it. We basically took this dream of the breadwinner, homemaker, love-based vision, and we took a sledgehammer to it and, and developed this third era where I think we currently are, which is called the, the self-expressive era, where it wouldn't be weird if your friend said to you, look, I love him. He's a good man. He's a good father. I feel like I am not growing in this relationship and I'm not going to do that for the last 30 years of my life. Mm -hmm. um, that would have been a weird thing to say in 1950. It's not a weird thing to say in 2020. And so what you can see is that we basically climbed from the bottom to the top of Maslow's hierarchy. All of us have that little triangle in, in our heads. We went from you know the physiological and safety needs at the bottom and now we're all the way up to the belonging and esteem and self-expressive or, or self-actualizing needs at the top. And as we have climbed, we have demanded more of the marriage and many of us are disappointed with, um, that, with a marriage that would have been totally fine for our grandparents. But at the same time, looking for a marriage to fulfill those sorts of things puts within reach of type of fulfillment that would have been out of reach when we weren't even trying. Right. But so the, the, the notion of being able to kind of elevate our desires and sometimes be able to actually find the compatible partner to, to fit them is it feels a little bit fraught with, with peril because, I mean, I think the argument you make, you know, kind of repeatedly and successfully is like, we are really, we're asking a lot, but we're actually in many ways asking too much or we're just, our, our, our expectations have just gotten so, because our world has gotten larger and our capabilities have gotten, you know, grander and broader, we're now asking for what sounds to be like the impossible. But then there are so many examples of couples and marriages that are successfully navigating, you know, with that new set of standards that I think the question becomes like those of us who don't feel that we are successful in that and accomplishing that, like, where have we gone wrong or what could we be doing differently? Or like, how do we need to, think about it differently because I think, you know, I think what certainly what struck me is just this idea of just redefining within your own relationship. And I mean, there's, there's so much this book and I, I really encourage people just to, to read it to really absorb, you know, the, the detail of it. But, you know, you get into kind of some tactics at the end, which I want to talk about in a bit more detail, but just kind of broad strokes. Like, it feels like there are very different camps here. So the, the people who are feeling like, okay, if I am asking too much, what do I do with that? And why am I asking too much? And how do I, I don't know. It's a lot of questions all kind of rolled into one. Yeah, if you're happy for me to riff, I, I think this is exactly right. We, we basically took a relationship, a, a, you know, a social institution, marriage, and made it fragile. Uh, we, you know, it, it, I, I reference some of your listeners will be familiar with the movie Sideways. There's this beautiful scene, my favorite scene in the movie, where Miles is talking to Maya, and she asks him, you know, what is it with you and, and Pino? Like, why are you so obsessed? And he says, well, it's a hard grape to grow. And he goes into this long speech about how high maintenance uh, the grape is, Pino is, and he says it's not a survivor like Cabernet, which can you know survive anywhere and grow even when it's neglected. Pino needs constant care and attention. Well, that's what we did to marriage. 
right? We basically, we basically took it from an institution that was something like Cabernet, right? Uh, um, something where uh, you could, you didn't really have to cultivate it all the time. You didn't have to work on your listening skills quite so much. I mean, some, some amount of it was obviously essential as you needed to coordinate on logistics and so forth. But this idea of like deep emotional connection and almost therapeutic style listening, that these are the skills that we think are, are required today. And we're basically right because of the changes that we have introduced to how we want our marriages to go. This, this didn't arrive, you know, this didn't come down Mount Sinai uh, with Moses, right? We changed this ourselves. Our culture changed these things. And we absolutely made things more fragile. But what's great about that, that monologue from Miles in, in the uh, Sideways in the movie is the question was, why are you so into Pinot? Why is it so amazing? And then he goes on for a minute being like, ah, it's temperamental. It ripens early. You have to pay attention to it all the time. It only grows in certain, certain types of climates. And then he says, but the flavors, they're just so haunting and brilliant, brilliant and subtle and ancient. And, and so the whole thing is a story about how amazing Pinot is. And that's sort of how I feel about marriage is, is we have shifted it from something that can, you know, does fine. You don't really have to attend very much to it to something that needs constant work that requires a lot of nurturance and attention and cultivation, like an orchid. And if we are giving it the regular type or if we don't really have compatibility with our spouse, yeah, we'll end up less happy than we would have if our expectations were 1950s expectations or 1800s expectations. But in those earlier eras, nobody was really trying to have Pinot Noir type connections. And so in an era where we're really trying to do it, and not half of us, but a substantial minority of us are really sticking the landing, we get something pretty special that was unavailable before. So can you talk a little bit about, so we have this, these sort of, um, these big shifts, right? And so you say, the last one, we kind of smashed it. Like culturally, what, what, like I get how we went from this sort of pragmatic to love to, you know, um, focusing on the self and personal growth and all that stuff. So what culturally happened that smashed that brought us into this current era. Yeah, what I find fascinating about this, and again, you know, I'm a psychologist, a psychology researcher. I, I bring couples into the lab and videotape them and follow them over time. I'm not a historian or a sociologist. So reading that stuff was so eye-opening to me. What I didn't know is that the, the sort of what we think of as the 1950s marriage, first of all, existed for basically an eye blink. Like we think of that as traditional marriage as if, well, going back in perpetuity, uh, 1950s and, and before that, that's what it looked like. No, um, you know, we need to be reminded that Leave it to Beaver was not a documentary. Right. Um, and, well, but and, it was because there was, that was the first time we saw marriage depicted right. before television. our eyes, right? Television is what happened. That's exactly right. So television, so, so the marriage that, the marriage type that happened to be big for a brief moment in time when television came in, got imprinted on our cultural psyche as if it was like objective fact that that's what marriage always was. It was like 15, 15 years that marriage actually was like that from about 47 to 62. But what's interesting is that since the late 1700s, this vision of how amazing would it be if we could marry for love? Now, I just told you why people weren't able to marry for love. Because you would starve. Because if you didn't care about the really practical things, you wouldn't produce enough food to feed your family. So it was an, it was an indulgence and a luxury that they couldn't afford. Well, they had this dream of this breadwinner homemaker that, that men have their sphere and women have their sphere, and they sort of cherish each other across the divide. And finally, in the 1950s, late 40s, they're able to do it. Um, this was like the only time in American history, certainly isn't true anymore, 
where a high school uh, boy could graduate and get a union card and modestly support a family in the suburbs. I mean, again, those days are gone. That was basically 45 to 75, but that was even possible. And so on a large scale, you can actually live this life that for many generations, people thought was heaven on earth. They thought this was the end of marital history, that, that she would tend to the home and that that would be the place of nurturance, so the home would be a haven in a heartless world. Like That was a new idea. The home was where you grew the crops. I mean, like, there wasn't this home as a haven from the brutalities of the workplace. That, the workplace didn't even really exist in the way that we think about it. So finally, in the 1950s, it all falls into place. And it falls into place in a generation of people who grew up with the Great Depression and World War II. And what do they say? They say, give us that. Give us stability. Give us the family life. Also, the suburbs, right? This was when the suburbs really became big. Everybody moves out to the suburbs. Again, people who can't afford it uh, move out to the suburbs. And what do they discover? This kind of sucks. That, that is, if it were true that men were by their very nature assertive but not nurturing, and if it were true that women by their very nature were nurturing but not assertive, then maybe that type of family structure would have worked for the majority of people, right? Where her job is to be the nurturer, she doesn't really have to worry about her sort of more assertive qualities. His job is to be the assertive person, the earner, the one who faces outward toward the, the marketplace, for example. And he doesn't have to be sensitive or, or nurturing. It turns out that's not who we are. It turns out that we cleaved the human psyche in half, not because there are no gender differences at all, but because women have a hell of a lot of need to be assertive and men have a hell of a lot of need to be nurturant. And so we create, and then not only do we cleave the psyche in half, but we also the second problem with the 1950s marriage is, in addition to this cleaving of the psyche in half, you, you have very, very profound, restrictive social roles. And people start to object to that. that. That is, women want more opportunities than they're afforded. And frankly, men feel that they're pretty stifled as well. And then you get the 60s. And the 60s is a lot of things. Just as a reminder for your listeners, 1961, the birth control pill goes on the market. Uh, 1963, Betty Friedan writes The Feminine Mystique. 64, 65 is the major civil rights legislation. Soon after that, the Vietnam protests start to pick up. And you get this huge additional emphasis on people not adhering so strongly to strict roles, to strict rules. And in that period of time, the 60s and the 70s, divorce doubled. That is about 25% of the people were going to divorce circa 1960 and about 50% by about 1980. Because all of the rules, the expectations that you were going to fit into a strict social role and that you were going to be fine with that, those ideas largely shattered in a very short period of time. One, one caveat here or one additional thing to mention at the end, the 1980 was the high watermark for divorce. So sometimes you hear people saying that, oh, divorce rates are skyrocketing. That's false. Divorce rates are actually down over the last 40 years. Um, they're not down as much as I would like. It's in the low 40s right now. Um, but I will say that among people with a college degree, Divorce rates are down dramatically. And in fact, the most recent evidence I've seen is that the 20-year divorce rate, we haven't followed this forever, but the 20-year divorce rate among people with a college degree is about 20%, which is significantly down from where it was around 19. 20-year 20, 20 divorce rate, meaning divorcing after 20 years of marriage? Within the first 20 years. Within the first 20 years. Yeah. So the, the percentage of people that divorced within 20 years um, is down to about uh, 20% among college college-educated people. Mm -hmm. um, I will say we'll eventually know the full answer to that, but of course you have to wait until everybody dies um, well, before right. you actually know what the divorce rate was. So these are our best guesses at the moment. And what do you, I mean, just to, just to uh, well, God, there's just so many directions we could go here, but just on that note, I mean, 
do you think that COVID is going to shatter that stat in, in the direction it was going? You know, it's it's early, and I'm speculating. Um, I remember when the when COVID first hit, when we you know in March, when we all went into shutdown. I remembered thinking that there were probably going to be two consequences for marriage and marriage-like relationships. The first one was going to be that on average, these relationships were going to get worse. Um, and my assumption there is that COVID basically is a big stressor and that on average, stress has a corrosive effect on all sorts of things, including the quality of our relationships. But that here again, we were going to see some divergence because for many of us, what a windfall. I mean, how many of us, if you had said to us in February, you're going to have a year where you're going to have 10 times as much time with your spouse as you thought you were going to have. I mean, there's, you won't be able to go to restaurants, um, but there's plenty to do, including you know, spending time under the covers. So there are many of us for whom that, that really could end up being a windfall. Now, it's too early to know what is actually happening. But yes, my guess is that on average, the average marriage is going to get worse and struggle with all of this. Um, and that and that some marriages, those where people really do enjoy each other's company and are very good at filling large amounts of, of open time together, that those people are going to be closer than ever. Um, one other thing I should mention is, I don't know if you recall, but there, there were these um, jokes on social media. I'm sure you guys saw this too, that, that there was going to be a huge baby boom like nine months after the shutdown and haha, everyone's going to be having so much sex. Right. Maybe it took not. about 45 seconds before all of us with kids were like, you guys don't have kids, right? Um, and, and so I bet that is going to be a big moderator too. If yeah, you're schooling no, kids at home, it's hard to imagine this is going that well for your marriage. Yeah, already been reading about the, the expectation of the COVID baby bust. Well, and I, I will say that I have a few friends right now. Actually, there was a little bit of a baby boom, but they were only like all of those people who are pregnant during COVID do not have kids. It was their first child. So, yes, exactly. Um, They're all going to be first children. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Probably um, only children. Right. If I could postulate. Um, yeah. Wait, so, do you guys have kids? I have two. Yeah. But so that I think is what has created kind of an interesting, you know, little dynamic here. And Zoe and I talk about this all the time. Like, you know, on one hand, I feel very fortunate and, and, and grateful and, and happy with my child-free choice as I always have. But, you know, the flip side of that is, and I, look, I know that there, everybody's got their own stuff. Everybody is dealing with this in very different ways. And I'm not saying anybody's, you know, from my perspective, you know, anybody's situation is better or worse than the other. It's just what your individual experience is. But, you know, the flip side of it is to your earlier point, like what a, what a gift to have that much time with your spouse. It's, it's a different kind of time. So yes. especially with, you know, those of us in the child-free camp, like, I would argue that most of us are fairly independent. And because we have more flexibility, we do spend more time apart from our spouses because we're able to. We're able to yeah. move freely about the world or yep. we go out more. We socialize more with friends. So, you know, for us, for example, like it's definitely been, you know, being just like in, in, a, in a room, in a house, you know, in, in our own environment. Like that creates a very different thing that, you know, I don't think any of us would have would have seen coming yeah. in saying like, oh, good, we get to kind of, you know, hunker down in winter for a while. Yeah. I do have a couple thoughts about that. So, so Esther Perel is a name that you, you guys might know. She's... Love her. Yeah, I love her too. She's that great. That was my intro joke when I said, where should we begin? Oh, oh how did well I miss done. that? Thank nice. You, nice. 
Um, you know, my insecurity about this is infinite, so I hope you feel good about yourself. Um, so, no, she's incredible. Um, but she talks about how fire needs air and that, you know, the, the, the prevailing views in my field of, you know, relationship research, but also in, in uh, marital therapy, for example, is about closeness. It's about more communication, more understanding, more sort of gentle touch, not necessarily sexual touch, but just more closeness, intimacy, et cetera. And she says, great. You know what's really hot? When you've been away from each other and then you sort of come back. And Erica, maybe this is what you're talking about is, is yes. Someone. What's that? Missing someone. is Missing hot. someone. Yes. But also like, here we are for the 98th consecutive hours. The hour together is like this, the moment when we're like hit up with intense fire for each other. Like, no, it's probably like you return from a conference and haven't seen each other in a few days. And suddenly you're like, you know, overcome with passion. Um, so I, I agree with you on that. And, and the, second, the second point that, that your comment inspired is sort of a complex one, but each relationship is different in terms of the, the way in which we are compatible. Um, and I get into this a little bit in the book. Some relationships really flourish because they're very good at being each other's best friend. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, they like to stand in, on the altar and say, I want to marry you because you're my best friend. Another thing that would have gotten you laughed out of your hamlet a couple hundred years ago, um, or maybe even just 75 years ago. But the ways in which we are compatible, it could be, it could be friendship, it could be communication, it could be that we're, you know, you're really good at supporting me and then I go out and with confidence, I, I you know, talk to the client. Um, and so some of the ways that couples are good together will be facilitated by the fact that now we're around the house together all the time. And some ways in which couples are really good together will be hindered. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be that each of us is really independent. And one of the reasons our relationship is so good is because of how much we are each other's cheerleaders as we you know, encourage each other to go out into the world and have great success. Well, this isn't the best for, the, for people like that. Um, so again, it's it's sort of a complex idea, but but the idea is that each of us has specific strengths in the marriage, specific weaknesses in the marriage. And if COVID has increased the degree to which we double down on those things that are good about the marriage, well, then we should be better off. And if COVID has really undermined those things in favor of a bunch of places where we kind of suck, then of course, we're going to be less happy. Yeah. Can you talk, just speaking of happiness, you, you, you spend some time talking about this idea of like the happiness versus meaning-based model, yeah. which I found really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just Because I think it kind of ties into the larger theme, obviously, of just expectations and what yeah. we are trying to get out of it. Yeah. I mean, th- this, was, um, this ended up being a chapter in my book, and I, and I didn't anticipate that. Um, the, the issue is this. How can you simultaneously have an institution, marriage, where, again, most of us continue to think of it in principle as until death do us part. How can you have a, a relationship like that that is simultaneously about personal fulfillment? I mean, is it, is it reasonable to think that for the next 60 years, you know, you're going to continue fulfilling me and I'm going to continue fulfilling you? And this is why conservative commentators, but, but really commentators from across the, the political spectrum have said, this type of marriage, that is a marriage that is focused on the personal fulfillment of the spouses rather than, say, raising children or a sacrament before God or other sorts of things, is inherently fragile. And I think they're right. That is, it is inherently more fragile if you're saying, look, I mean, as long as we are sort of fulfilling each other, we'll stay together. And if we stop fulfilling each other, we won't. But the insight that I had when writing the book is fulfillment means a couple of different things. And if what fulfillment means is something close to pleasure or joy, that is, 
I'm feeling good, like positive feelings. Well, then I think the conservative commentators are right. It's a little bit difficult to imagine that across 60 years, I won't have periods in the relationship that are like, ugh, this kind of sucks, or this is really difficult, or boy, that other person's pretty gorgeous and fun. But what if the, the fulfillment that we're looking for is not sort of pleasure and joy and good feelings, but is, is something closer to meaning and purpose? Well, then I think you can actually eliminate the tension between the idea of trying to have commitment and trying to have fulfillment. And the way that you eliminate that tension is you can define a meaningful, fulfilling life, right? Like your own personal fulfillment, marriage and sustaining a long-term family, uh, either marital relationship or broader family relationship is the means through which you are going to achieve this sort of fulfillment. This emphasis on fulfillment and meaning rather than happiness and pleasure, I think, helps to reconcile the personal fulfillment approach with the marital commitment idea. So it's essentially that marriage becomes the means to the end rather than vice versa. Yeah, there's no inherent tension anymore. If, if marriage is one of the major ways in which we would like to live a meaningful, fulfilling life, then it's no longer like, I'm not sort of feeling it right now. I'm out. It's more like, how are we going to make this work? Mm-hmm. Can I just ask how long have you been married? Let's see. Uh, carry the one, I don't know, like 10 or 25 years. I think, I think 10. 10, yeah. 11, no, tw- uh, 12. 12 years. Okay. And do you have children? Yes. Yeah. How many? Like seven? Yeah, like seven or I, th- I think two. Two children. <laughs> but by the way, on the children thing, this sort of came up earlier. I actually wrote an op-ed some years back, this is in the New York Times, called The Trauma of Parenthood. I saw um, that. I remember seeing Okay. That. Yeah. I mean, where I, 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 I... So please tell me. What, what is it? Yeah. I mean, I look, I, you know, I was in a mood when I wrote it, but, but I basically said that... There's many, many, many good reasons to have kids, but the short-term happiness of your marriage probably is not one of them, and your short-term like joy in your life um, probably is not one of them. Again, at least on average. Um, and you know, I basically reviewed the data on like what happens to people emotionally, what happens to their relationship, what happens to their finances, and I, I said like, look, there's a lot of reasons to have kids. We are being cruel if we treat people who are struggling with the adjustment to parenting as if they're monsters. And that was the idea of the, that, that parenting is one part pleasure and one part trauma. I will say like having really young kids is much more difficult than having older kids, although mine aren't yet teenagers. Yeah, it's, it is so true. I talk yeah. about this often because I think there was an interesting, uh, I think it was the, co- the, the creator's babble. Do you know that? Um, yeah. So they did this study where they have a, like a pretty good Ted talk about it, where they tried to measure happiness and they, they compared it, those who have children and those who do not. And it was fascinating. I mean, there was many graphs they, they kind of consolidated. Yeah. So they were pulling from a few different places. But what it showed was basically like um, couples who did not have children had this higher and more consistent level of happiness throughout their relationship. Whereas, you know, couples with children had these like, insane high spikes and just like devastating lows and it continued that way and the point at which they met up was or at least got closer together was uh the point at which the children graduated from high school and left the home and i was like oh my god what the fuck did i sign up for um <laughs> but, but, for 20 years of bliss yeah no but their point was like Basically, they, they were experiencing like very high highs, very high levels, sort of like transcendent levels of happiness, but then also these devastating lows. So, you know, it all sort of seems like it works out in the end, but 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it could. I mean, my my guess is that if you're just focusing on like the day to day, how pleasurable was your day to day? That that having young kids is a disaster. Um, and in fact, I'm basing this on data. Is you know, if you ask people, if you do like list, you know, twenty sorts of tasks that people do. I forget what's below, like, like definitely laundry is ranked higher in terms of how much you enjoyed your, your time than like parenting. Um, oh. Now, again, these things change. And, and right now I've started watching the Lord of the Rings with my 11 year old. And I'll tell you, that's a whole lot more fun than trying to figure out how Barbies work. So, so it's, it's, it's hard to know. One of the best arguments, I think, um, that one of the best personal fulfillment arguments, I think, for having kids is that apparently being a grandparent is amazing. And I'm not sure if there are any easy shortcuts to that role. And of course, you're sort of gambling that your kids will eventually have other kids. But my understanding is that that role is basically the cat's meow. Huh, yeah. I, I, pajamas. I, I, pajamas? I think it's pajamas, but we're like both. It could go either way. Okay, well, these are meowish pajamas. Okay. Um, anyway, so people get married to have kids often, right? I mean, less so now. What is, what is driving that? Just pure ignorance and... Well, I don't think these people are ignorant. No, I mean, I think it's a very reasonable oh, you never thing to do. Know how stressful it's going to be to have kids. Oh, like, oh, what's driving them to have kids in the first place? Get married. There's a lot to be said for having kids. I'm glad I have kids. I wouldn't return them. I mean, that well, could I just be my them, but yeah. Okay, well, I think there's a couple of reasons. So, so, first of all, there are many reasons to have kids that aren't about your personal pleasure. So, I like, I think it is not pleasurable to have kids. I, I think that's basically right. It's pleasurable to make kids. Um, at least the first part. Uh, apparently for women, it gets less pleasurable over the next nine months. But the beginning part can be pleasurable, hopefully for everybody. And, but, but yes, I don't think your personal like jollies with your life, like it's easy and fun. I don't think those are reasons to have kids, at least not on average. But there are many in terms of you know, life goals, right? So we might set all sorts of difficult life goals. And a lot of the things that make our lives purposeful and fulfilling and meaningful are the difficult things that we do. And you do love your kids in ways that are, that are, difficult to describe to, to somebody who hasn't experienced it. And, and that experience is worth a tremendous amount. I don't know where that ends up on a survey of, you know, how jolly were you today, but it is, it is not meaningless. And so I think there are many reasons to have kids, but I agree with you that one of the reasons why, one of the factors probably that influences the, the yes decisions about kids among people who consciously decide rather than whoops their way into it is that we're not very open about the challenges. I mean, I do think your generation, our generation of women has really started to be more open about these things, but, but it, is not, it is not easy to talk openly about real difficulty um, in parenting. It, it's okay if you say, it's really hard, the hardest job you'll ever love, right? And then with a smile and a wink, but saying, no, really, I'm miserable. Like there's still, there's still stereotypes for that. Although, like I said, women, I think, sort of middle-aged and younger are really starting to talk openly about it. And I, I think that's a big public service. I do too. I think it's yeah. probably going to like drive the marriage rate down a little bit. Maybe. I don't know. How, um, how, how many kids, how old are your kids, Zoe? Uh, three and a half and five and a half. Uh, so you're sort of just coming out of the really uh, in, intense I'm like, part. I can finally see around yeah. the corner. Yes, it's nice. I just forgot to pick my kid up from school. Just nice. Well, that makes it especially nice. If you don't parent them, it's much easier. I was like, in the short run. Like no one's picked up your daughter. They're <laughs> <laughs> um, like, no wonder I was having such a pleasurable day. Yeah, like, right? No wonder I was getting so much shit done. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god, I was over here just working away. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's interesting. Well, I mean, can we just like zoom out a little bit and maybe step back to I guess this idea of I remember being a teenager and and getting into these 
conversations with my older sister about how I thought marriage was like this useless institution. And I mean, like I was like 16 and like, why can't you just be with someone? Why do you have to make it legal? And this is like, you know, the nineties. Do you think, I mean, are we moving in a direction where marriage will become obsolete? Like what, what is it serving? Like why are, why are people still getting married? I don't know. I mean, if I had to answer for my... Oh, oh, Dr. Huss has the answer. Dr. Huss. Well, I would answer from my own perspective, from a position of somebody who specifically did not get married in order to build a pathway to having children, which was, and I would have said to 16-year-olds, two times, <laughs> two times I did it. I would say to 16-year-old Zoe that something changes when you become a family unit, right? And I consider family, you know, I consider my husband family. And it, there's a shift in the energy. There is something that feels very, um, just different in terms of envisioning a life together. And that is definitely not rooted in anything more than sort of an emotional response because yes, it is a piece of paper. And for all intents and purposes, it's a business agreement. It's definitely not a romantic experience to just join households and lives and, you know, kind of see under the hood. But the motivation, it was too, for me, it was, I, I definitely am not doing a lot of things that other women my age are interested in doing, speaking of becoming a mom. So if I'm going to, you know, uh, this, is the, this is the conventional thing I'm going to do if I'm going to not do that other conventional thing. And that was kind of like, for me, you know, that was, that was helpful for me and in, in explaining, I guess, or, or, or reconciling my choices. And then it was the other, just like, I just like the idea of having it feel a little bit more official and a little bit more solidified. And all that means absolutely nothing because as we all know, like you can very easily just undo it and it's like, it never happened, but it's more of a sentiment from my point of view. But from a clinical point of view, I would be curious to know what the, what the response would be. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think it would be similar to that. With regard to the very last thing you said, you know, as we all know, you could just undo it. That's new, by the way. I mean, it, 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 this idea, it's called no-fault divorce. I think our generation and younger, they don't even, we don't even think about this stuff. But, but people battled hard for this. Yeah, the state true. was very, very opposed to people getting divorced. And here's a, here's a, a fun trivia question. You guys have a guess? One of the states uh, passed the first no-fault divorce law. Um, the governor is famous. Do you know who it was? California. California, yep. So who was it? Oh, who was the governor? Yeah. Oh my God, you're Schwarzenegger? No, it was way before that. It It was was, Ronald Reagan. It was Reagan. Right? So like basically the paragon of the right is the one who signed into law the first no-fault divorce law. But but anyway, it didn't used to be that it was so easy to get out of these things. And so I think, Zoe, you ask a great question. Like, if I had to say, like, why was it essential that, that my wife and I got married? As opposed to, of course, I mean, th- this is separate from the question of committed long-term relationship, you know, th- all those sorts of things. I don't have a great argument for you other than we wanted to. And I don't have a great argument for why we wanted to other than, well, because we grew up in America when we did. Um, if we'd grown up in um, Holland uh, in the same era, we might not have bothered. I mean, they, they often don't get married. Sometimes they're together 14 years and then they decide to have kids and then they marry for that or they don't bother to marry for that. So I, I know that I'm kind of like the, the marriage guy, but I don't know that the, the official sanction from the state matters that much, except Erica, I agree with you that there is something to be said for saying to ourselves and in front of our loved ones, this is official now. Mm-hmm. And whether that is signed by the state or, or, or whatever, 
again, some people are, are quite, it is a sacrament before God. So we're sort of setting that aside for the moment. But for many people, it's, it's meaningful in that sense. Um, but for the non-religious people who are getting married or for the people who are marrying for non-religious reasons, I agree with you, Erica. There is, there is an extra level of commitment above and beyond. We've been together 10 years, above and beyond we love each other, above and beyond we expect to be together. There is something to be said for the big, broad public commitment, not necessarily a fancy wedding, but a big, broad public commitment that says we stand before all of you and announce our love for each other or at least our commitment to be with each other through thick and thin. And I, I do think there is some additional commitment value of doing that. Well, and I'm going to say, yes, one, one piece of um, logistical value that is kind of insane and bullshit is that like... God forbid something happens to your life partner and they are hospitalized, et cetera, et cetera. If you are not legally married, it becomes a whole lot more difficult to actually be able to play the role that you would otherwise be playing, which is... That's right. Yeah. Actually, that was one of the... the, Just briefly, that was one of the most, um, I think, compelling early arguments in favor of of gay rights, gay marriage, and so forth. It's like, are you serious? Like, we can't be at the bedside of our loved one right now because the state won't sanction this. So I agree that, that if the norm shifted about these things, we'd have to come up with some way of making sure that life partners, however they're defined, would be allowed those sorts of, of uh, that sort of sort of medical access, for example. Yeah. I'm sorry, Zoe, were you chiming in? Sorry, you were just saying like, you know, we make this big public announcement, we're in love with each other and then we're going to get married. And just, okay, so can we just focus on the word love for a moment? Uh-oh. <laughs> you know? I don't know if you want me to get started on this. I have controversial I do, views. It's so, okay. so like, I feel like Esther Perel, you know, is constantly, I, like her, her, one of her sound bites is definitely like love is is not a feeling; it is an act, and you know that whole kind of idea. So, I'm just so I'm just so interested in digging into that word because it's like, okay, well, if it's not love that we're feeling, it's just what lust; it's just passion, and then obviously that wears off, and then you're in this relationship where you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, now what? I've got to sort of like evolve and and find my my best self within the confines of this like you know two-person relationship and we have to foster each other's growth we're still supposed to be like really attracted to each other and also supposed to be best friends and we're also supposed to be like business partners and sounding boards and all the rest so what happens to that quote-unquote love is it love in the first place and then how how do we i mean how do we continue in a relationship once that once these are obviously very difficult questions to <laughs> answer yeah. but and just, you know, if you could I talk about that for me. Yeah, I sort of wish I were asking and you were answering. In our field, like the, the you know, the people who sort of study this stuff, there is a, a perspective that I find plausible that says that, that there are sort of, there are basically three evolved systems in the sort of like love and mating space. The first one is, I think we could call it lust, which is this non-differentiated, non-target specific desire to get your rocks off basically, right? So there's just this, I don't really care who it is exactly, but I'm feeling horny. The second, I think we can call it maybe in, in, um, infatuation or passionate love, which is obsessive love about one person. It's what we often think of as being in love. And it's interesting the extent to which those Feelings overlap with what you see from people suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder, Um, right? It's like, I can't stop thinking about her. All I want to do is text her, call her, love on her, touch her, right? And and so this is the, the second one of this passionate love. And well, I'll come back to that. The third type is what you might call attachment or bondedness. And, and this is less hot, less fiery, less I can't stop thinking about you, I can't stop touching you, and more 
I feel tenderly and warm-heartedly for you. And so I, I think to some degree, people are talking about the transition from that second type to that third type, right? From this, I, the, what we think of as being in love. And by the way, we seem to have decided that being in love is like a reasonable set of criteria, a reasonable criterion for being like, let's do this forever, which is, again, a very, very bad idea. I don't know whose idea it was to like take the most psychotic moment that you have in your life and be like, let's do this more for the next 60 years. And if, but, but yes, I think a lot of relationships, look, look, the fact is that type of obsessive passion typically fades on something like the two-year mark. Now, there's variation, of course, but very rarely do you see people way further than that who are still in that obsessive in love phase. But a whole lot of the, what they're feeling for each other is this like tenderness and warm-heartedness and love and, and having children can even increase that. Um, you might fight more, but it, you're like, we're like parents together of these children and so forth. But What's interesting is, how is it that we sustain the, the sexuality, the romance, with the person that we used to have this incredible amount of, of passion for, because that's normal in early relationships, but now we've been together 15 years, and having that type of passion for each other is, is quite rare. And that's why there's all these, so Esther Perel and others, that's why all these people are telling you, well, here's how to cultivate more fire. The radical idea is, who decided that like sex and romance has to go with with this other like loving companionableness and who decided that both of those hap- had to be in the one person that was going to be your life mate until death do you part even though we're going to get older and on average less attractive and the novelty of course will, will wear off like this is this is sort of again early when i was thinking about what i was going to say in the book this is one of the things that i was like damn we're looking for a lot from this thing and with regard to monogamy, that is romantic and sexual exclusivity, we don't even treat it like that's a big ask. We're like, well, you know, of course we're going to be you know, monogamous for the next 60 years, but then we'll get to what we're really looking to each other for. Well, for my money, if that's one that you want to prioritize, and many people should, I think it's probably good for many, many people to have a, you know, strictly monogamous uh, marriage, especially people who are prone toward jealousy or, or insecurity. But be aware of what you're asking. Like, what does that mean in terms of your physical fitness when you're 70? What does that mean in terms of how much you're going to dedicate yourself to, you know, romantic considerations? Those are, those are things that I think should be part of the monogamy ask rather than just this assumption that, well, of course, no matter what happens, you're going to just be in love with me and only have sex with me till the end of time. It's a reasonable request, but it's a huge one. Yeah. And you think it's reasonable? Okay. Just <laughs> I do. Uh, well, hold on. Let, let me be clear about reasonable. Yes. I think it is a reasonable ask. And, and many, many couples, I, I think, will be able to, to pull it off until death do them part and be totally happy doing it. So, so my, my concern, sometimes you get sort of activists about how monogamy is bad. I am definitely not in that category. I think monogamy is good for many, many couples for many reasons. I just don't think it should be this absolute default for all couples where if you want to bring it up, you can't because it is viewed as a betrayal just to have the conversation. I, I think the default should be that this is a conversation that people have, not that everybody should be in this same relationship type without ever being allowed to talk about it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, everyone, it's just, it's so taboo, but yeah. Do you think there are any, you know, I'm sure the answer is yes, but like, situations where having an affair is probably going to serve the relationship? Can we be, yes, for sure. But can we be clear about affair? So by fair, by affair, do you mean cheating? That is, that yeah. is your, 
Non-consensual, you're saying. Non-consensual non-monogamy as opposed to consensual non-monogamy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's what I mean. I can't recommend affairs, no. but but if you're asking me, so if you're asking me on average, affairs, good for marriage, bad for marriage, I have a clear answer to that, and it is bad for marriage. <laughs> if you're asking me, do I think that the disruption that can come in the wake of an affair can yield the sorts of conversations that help us grow closer together over time, a different, deeper, more complex, nuanced understanding of each other, yes, there is no doubt that that some relationships are able to be even stronger after a rupture of that sort. Mm-hmm. For me, the interesting question is, is not really usually about affair versus not affair. I think affairs are a bad idea. It's usually about open monogamy versus open non-monogamy, like right. honest, honest monogamy, honest yeah. non-monogamy. And I think that's, I mean, that sort of kind of ties into where we wanted to go, which I know we're running short on time, unfortunately, and there's so much more to dig into, but we're going to have to do some rapid fire questions. Well, but that's, it ties into what happens towards the end of the book, which I think is actually super helpful and, and, and valuable, which is that, you know, you've done all this research, you have these theories that you've been able to really support and argue, but then you also get into the tactics, right? And the tactics around, and just, I'm going to like rattle off some of these examples, like love hacks versus going all in versus recalibration. So these are, so, so non-consensual monogamy or non-monogamy or Consensual non-monogamy is yeah. one of these examples. You got to get that one right. It's embarrassing. I if you were like, whoops, I meant to be consensual. Yeah, I meant yeah. it. Uh, yeah. I just forgot to ask. Yeah. But can you, can you just talk a little bit about these tactics? Because again, I feel like because they are so tactical, like that's really what is so kind of you know, valuable for people. Yeah. I mean, I shudder at the idea that my book is a self-help book, but definitely if people get all the way through it, it, is, it does have self-help in it. So the idea is if what we've talked about thus far is correct, that we've changed our expectations, that makes it a little more difficult to have a good marriage, but the best marriages are better, it suggests that it's basically a supply and demand story. That is, you're welcome to ask for whatever you want to ask for from the relationship, but if your relationship isn't going to be able to deliver those things, you're going to end up disappointed. And so what I do really in the last maybe 40% of the book is I help people think about what are the priorities that you have? What are the things that are really essential that you meet in this particular relationship? Is it having a household where our friends feel comfortable when they come over? Is it that we're going to have a hot sex life? Are we going to be good parents for our children? And for those things that really matter, especially if we can understand each other on those things, go all in, prioritize those things, be demanding about the quality of those things. But that's what I call going all in. But in terms of asking less, reducing the demand that we're placing on the marriage, what are the things that really aren't essential for us to meet through the marriage? What are the things that like, we chronically find ourselves disappointed and frustrated with each other? And this is kind of dumb because there's no reason why we have to bring these expectations. Can we lower those sorts of expectations? And then the last part is also in the supply and demand idea. I call them love hacks because what if we're not ready to sort of lower ex- our expectations, but we also don't have the bandwidth or the inclination right now to do a bunch of extra, you know, dates and and seduction rituals and so forth are the quick and dirty things that we can do to just think more constructively about the relationship. And here I, I call on Marcel Proust, who says that mystery is not about traveling to new places, but about looking with new eyes. And I talk about several ways that we can try to recalibrate how we think about the relationship in ways that will make it stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Expectations. Oof. Yes. Every yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. What was the quote from Esther? It was expectations are just resentments waiting to happen. You know, it's funny because 
she's right, but but the opposite of what she says is also right. And that's that's basically the, the crux of my book, is that on the one hand, expectations are resentments waiting to happen. On the other hand, if you don't allow yourself to expect anything in your marriage, you're not going to have a good one either. Right. And so, the, and so the idea is, how is it that we can calibrate our expectations to be demanding about the things that really matter and that we're really willing to work hard on while simultaneously eliminating or reducing the expectations that are just going to end up being disappointments and aren't that important anyway. Right. I mean, I think it all sort of goes to say you can't be passive if you expect to get anything out of it. It really does take active participation. I feel like, you know, there is no marriage that or relationship, significant relationship, forget about marriage, that anybody can point to that says like those people seem super happy and it just looks like it comes naturally and easily like that. Maybe you're catching them in a window where things are easy, but I really do believe that you can't get anywhere unless everybody is willing to actually contribute to the work and put it in, which is a lot easier said than done, unfortunately. Pinot Noir. (laughs) Okay, I have two very quick questions for you. Yes. What is the most important thing a marriage needs to survive? Go, no pressure. I think it is about these expectations. I think it is really about where are we strong, doubling down on those things? Where are we weak? trying to minimize the damage of those things and then, you know, trying to get on the same page. Got it. Good answer. You know your marriage is in trouble when... We stop being willing to doubt our own interpretation of reality. When we stop being willing to understand that our partner has a perspective and that perspective is also valid and warrants serious consideration. Great. Well, again, I mean, I hate to invoke Esther again because this is your time and we hopefully one day will our time with Esther. But she, I mean, one of the biggest takeaways of all time with her, which I have used in certain conversations is, do you want to be right or do you want to be married? Yes, that's right. And by the way, this is not really about today's topic. I think that's confronting our country right now too. I just submitted an op-ed about our political situation. And I think there's a lot going on with that. It's like we're deeply immersed in our moral narratives and the other side is so evil. And if we take the wisdom of relationships, can we apply it to our political situation? I don't know. I hope. Brilliant. Good one. one. All right. Well, I guess this is a good place to stop, even though obviously we would like to continue to just pick and pick and pick because this is... Fantastic. We will officially say goodbye. Thank you. Everybody needs to read The All or Nothing Marriage or listen to it or however you need to absorb this information because it's amazing. It's so great. Thank you so much for Thank you, Eli. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.